If you have your Bibles with you, and we encourage you to be bringing those these days, you can turn to the book of Luke. Get used to saying that because we're going to be saying it a lot in the next couple of years. We are just going through this book methodically. This is really, there's a, there's a kind of a unique value to preaching topically where you just kind of sense what's the body needing or whatever. And so there's, I'm not against that, and I will at times do that. But this is really the way I like to preach, is just to hunker down and, and just plow through it verse by verse and chew on it and, and ask God, what do you want to speak to us about out of this uh, text? And, uh, and it kind of models, I think, models how to mine the Word of God uh, for God's wisdom. This is a very, very deep book. You can read it on a lot of different levels. And so we're not in a hurry. We just kind of hover over things and, and uh, uh, just kind of you know, pull out nuggets here and there. So we're in the, after two months, we're still in chapter 1, but we are all the way up to verse 13. We read... Uh, <laughs> Uh, we read verses 13 through 17 last week in order to look at John the Baptist in the womb. And we discussed, uh, we used that as an occasion to discuss God's perspective of life in the womb. If you weren't here, I encourage you to get that message. A lot of people found it very clarifying. Uh, and now what I want to do is talk about John's life outside the womb. But I'm going to use the same four verses uh, to, to do that. And I'm reading from the TNIV version, Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, where it says this, The angel said to him, referring to Zacharias, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He's going to take a Nazarite vow. Uh, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born, as we said last week. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of that mighty Old Testament prophet Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. In other words... To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so I want to entitle this Preparing a Highway for the Lord. Preparing the way of the Lord. I want to pray for the message. Could I get a few people or a few lot of people to uh, be intercessors throughout the message? Appreciate it. We don't believe anything of kingdom value happens without prayer. So just be interceding for me as the word is going forth. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you will use your word here as it comes out of my mouth to uh, do whatever you know needs to happen in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, build your kingdom and purge out everything that's not of your kingdom. We don't trust human eloquence, human wisdom, human ability, human talent to do anything of value for the kingdom, God. We, we do the best we can and we open ourselves up to you, but Lord, we know that it's your spirit using who we are and what we have that alone accomplishes the kingdom work. So Lord, uh, Holy Spirit, cultivate the soil of our brain and the soil of our heart and help us to be recipients of your word that might even change us in some fundamental ways in which we live. 
Tear down the strongholds of lies that we've absorbed from our culture and release us to be the radical revolutionary kingdom people that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. 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 I really sense the Holy Spirit here this morning. And that makes it exciting. John was prophesied about in the Old Testament in two different places. He fulfilled two Old Testament prophecies that were given about 400 years apart, but both of them centuries before John ever came around. The first prophecy that, that John the Baptist fulfills is, uh, comes out of Isaiah chapter 40, which says this in verses 3 and 5. A voice cries out, And the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Several hundred years later, Malachi gave another prophecy about John the Baptist, where the Lord says, See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, Luke, later on, we'll see in chapter 3, and then Matthew and Mark as well, quote those prophecies verbatim. And they apply them to uh, John the Baptist. There's three points I want to make out of these prophecies, as well as out of the passage that we read this morning from Luke. The third one I'll get to next week, and it has to do with John's role in turning the hearts of parents to their children. Interesting, as soon as the kingdom shows up, uh, parents are going to be interested in their kids once again, so we're going to talk about that. This morning, there's two things I want to say, coming from these two prophecies in the verse that we read. First of all, the prophecies, though they're about John, they say a whole lot about Jesus. And what they say about Jesus is of monumental importance. Both prophecies really show us that Jesus, the identity of Jesus is that he is Yahweh incarnate. He is the Lord incarnate. In Isaiah, we read, prepare the way of the Lord. The word Lord there is the Hebrew word for Yahweh. Prepare the way of Yahweh. If John fulfills the preparing part, Jesus fulfills the Yahweh part. So also, Isaiah says, make a highway for our God. Apparently, whatever degree of clarity they had about this, I don't know, but Isaiah is looking forward to a time when a messenger will come and be the forerunner of Yahweh, God, showing up on earth. Malachi says something very similar when Yahweh says, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. I'm coming. And then later on he says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. If we take these prophecies seriously, they tell us a lot about John. He's the forerunner of the kingdom. He's the forerunner of Jesus. But they also therefore say a whole lot about Jesus, and that is that he is the Lord God. And the reason why that is so vitally important to us here this morning is that we are in a culture where there are a lot of different opinions about Jesus. Uh, Most of them are good. Most of them are positive. Uh, In a recent poll that was taken um, rating individuals and social groups in terms of respectability, while born-again Christians were near the bottom 
Uh, Jesus was almost at the top. Him and Gandhi and Mother Teresa, people like Jesus. Now, they don't like born-again Christians, I think, for obvious reasons. Uh, and it's not because of the liberal media either. Uh, but that's a different sermon. Uh, but they like Jesus. You know, it's hard to, to not like a guy who was a magnet for prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, who touched lepers, who broke all the religious rules and, and demonstrated this, this radical love. Uh, even many non-Christians admire the guy. And so you find them saying things like, Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus set a great example, which is true. Jesus was a great moral instructor, which is true. Uh, some will go as far as to say he was a prophet. He was right up there with Muhammad. He was an inspired prophet even. Uh, and in some circles you'll find people going as far as to say that maybe in some sense he was divine, like, like the Jehovah Witnesses hold that he is like an angel. He's an angel, the highest archangel that was incarnate. Maybe Michael, the angel incarnate. And in the New Age movement, we have this whole philosophy that says that Jesus is, is, is at least an inspired prophet. Maybe he's the reincarnation of Buddha. Maybe he is that bodhisattva, all right, an enlightened one who's come to show mercy to humanity. Maybe he's one of the uh, bearers of the ethereal flame of higher consciousness. And by saying these things, they really want to compliment Jesus. They're, they're trying to say, yes, Jesus. But see... According to, to the Bible, uh, those are fine, but, but, but you haven't come close to complimenting Jesus by giving him the, even the greatest attributes you could give a, a, a created being. Because according to the New Testament, even according to the Old Testament, Jesus is not just a great teacher. Jesus is not just an inspired prophet. And Jesus certainly ain't nobody Satva. He's, he's Yahweh. He's God. He's the creator. He's the Lord. Robed himself in flesh. He's God in veil in flesh in humanity. And so it's the teaching we find throughout the whole New Testament. Um, in John 1.1 1, 1, it says that Jesus was the word that was with God from all eternity and was God from all eternity. In, in John 20, 28, when Jesus shows up to Thomas, uh, Thomas finally gets it and says, my Lord and my God. This is a first century Jew talking here. My Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, yo, dude, chill. You're getting a little carried away here. Jesus says, blessed are you for you have seen and believed. That's a profession of faith. To have faith in Jesus Christ from a New Testament perspective is to believe that he's the Lord and that he's God. Romans 9.5, he's God over all, blessed forever, amen. Titus 2.13, Paul calls him our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it goes beyond just the title God that he receives in the New Testament. He receives the attributes of God. Uh, for example, uh, he's called the creator of the universe. But the Bible is very clear that there's only one creator of the universe, and that is God. The Bible portrays him, the New Testament portrays him as the judge of the whole earth. But the Bible is very consistent that there's only one who will judge the whole earth, and that is God. Uh, Jesus applies to himself the name of God spoken in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, the I am. In John 8, he says, I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And they understood that he was applying to himself the title God. That's why they wanted to stone him. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says he's the Alpha and the Omega. But in the Old Testament, it's Yahweh who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And he, he adds immediately, and beside me there is none other. I alone am God. Uh, throughout the New Testament, Jesus is worshipped as God. And that's something which for first century Jews would have been blasphemous if in fact he's not God. In fact, one of the most important questions in all of history is, 
what must Jesus have been like to convince these first century Jews against all of their culture, cultural and religious presuppositions that a human being could be God? He would have to be something like what the New Testament portrays him as, as being if he were to overturn these most fundamental cultural and religious assumptions about God and humanity. The disciples acknowledge that in Jesus Christ, somehow, some way, God himself was present on earth. Now, a lot of people miss this because they also read that Jesus was the Son of God. And they figure if he's the Son of God, that means he can't himself be God. But you see, we need to understand terms in their cultural context. And in the cultural context of the first century, Son of God had quite a wide range of meanings, but one of the meanings was, was, was that just this. Son of meant having the nature of and, and having the manifestation of looking like something else. When the Bible says that uh, Judas was the son of perdition, it means that his nature now was damnable. So when the Bible says that Jesus is the son of God, we shouldn't hear it as saying, and he's not God. We ought to hear, hear, hear it as saying, He's the revealer of God, the manifestation of God, the presence of God, the word of God, the image of God, the expression of God. These are all terms used in the New Testament, and they're all summed up with the word Son of God. God exists as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and so when the Son shows up, this is how God looks when he's revealed. When God expresses himself, it looks like Jesus Christ. And see, if that is true, well, let's first consider if it's not true. If it's not true that Jesus Christ is, is, is Lord God, and yet he gave all of his disciples the impression that he was, then the last thing we ought to be doing is giving him compliments for being a good moral teacher and a wonderful prophet. Uh, this is not what a good moral teacher and wonderful prophet does. You don't go around claiming to be divine if you're just a great guru or a bodhisattva, all right? Uh, crazy people do that. Maybe charlatans do that. Uh, but ordinary people don't do that unless, in case, once in history, he's actually telling the truth. If he is telling the truth, then calling him the bodhisattva or the reincarnation of Buddha or a great moral prophet or even an angel, that's not a compliment. No, you're, you're, still, in, you're still shooting an infinity too, 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 too short. Uh, if he's Lord God, there's only, there's only one response that is appropriate if you believe that. If he's the Lord God Almighty, come down to earth out of love for humanity, to die on a cross and reconcile us to himself and defeat the devil. If that is true, the only appropriate response is to bow your knee and give him your all. Amen. Bow your knee, give him your all. Amen. If he's the Lord God, if he's the Lord God, then he is, and if, if he was willing to do that for us, what is our appropriate response? The only appropriate response is to make him the center of everything, to make him the reason why you live, <laughs> make him the reason why you get out of bed in the morning, make him the ultimate reason why you go to work, make him the ultimate reason why you breathe, and the ultimate reason why you think. If the Lord God has become a human being to save us from the enemy and reconcile us to himself, then the only appropriate response is to commit all your heart and all your being and all your body and all your strength to living in adoration to him to submitting your life to him, to abandoning all else and following him. Amen. 
Jesus didn't come, as I said last week, to start a religion. He's not interested in a religion. In fact, religion's always been the main problem he's up against. Jesus came to start a revolution, and the revolution centers on him. To be a disciple is to be a revolutionary. If you signed up for this thing, you got to know that you're a revolutionary, which means that you're a revolter. A re revolutionary is one who revolts. And what you revolt against is the world without Jesus Christ. We don't revolt in a violent way. No, just the opposite. Everything about the kingdom is the opposite of the world. This is a revolt of radical love, of radical discipleship, where you revolt against all that is in the world that is inconsistent with the personality of Jesus Christ because you've surrendered your life to him. You've surrendered your mind to him. You've surrendered your values to him. You've surrendered your possessions to him. If in fact he's the Lord God, there's only, there's only one appropriate response and that's to sell all. And you found the pearl of great price and to base your life on it. Everything you're about, you get radical with it. Someone said to me a couple of weeks ago and, and they meant well, but they, they, were, they basically said this, how come well, every one of your messages always has to have this sort of radical edge to it. You, you, you know, you, you scare away people. If you just soften it a little bit, you, 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 you do better. And I, I appreciate the coaching, but you know what? Um, uh, show, show, me, show me exactly where that non-radical gospel was. I, I, I seem to have missed that. I, I, I'm not a very good reader, I guess. It's, I, I, it's radical. <laughs> it's radical. Uh, you know... I'm sorry, but, but when, you, when you hear that Yahweh who created the entire world, who holds every molecule in existence, became a human being to die for me because he's so in love with me, I, if that's not radical, then what is radical? And, and the only response is, is to go nuts over this. If this is true, there is no other fact in history that compares in importance. This is it. This is the meaning. This is the, the reason. This is the life right here. Join the revolution. <laughs> It's radical. And see, when, when, when the Lord invites us to join this, you know, he, he puts all the cards up. He, he, he was not a very good seeker-sensitive preacher, man. He just wasn't like a, he, he, you know, you want radical, read the Gospels. Jesus is like, well, you're willing to die? You want to die? Follow me. Want to lose your home? Good, follow me. Uh, you know, want to break all those social conventions? Follow me. What a sales pitch. But see, what he offers here is like this. If you're willing to die to all the stuff, all the trinkets that the world dangles before you to hold as the meaning of your life for the 70 or so years that you live, uh, if you're going to follow Jesus, you die to that. You realize the trinket shallow glitteriness of it all. And you say, you know, you know, there's no life there. And you follow him. And when you sign up for the revolution, the invitation to die and join the revolution is an invitation to live. It's life itself. Now you begin to move in the life that God always wanted human beings to move into. You'll never find it as long as you're trying just to tweak yourself, your life as a living out of a self-centered world mindset. But you die to self and live for him and surrender all. It only gets good when you, when you, when you, when you quit fighting it and you just abandon yourself to it. And now you're in, a, you're in the flow of the revolution. So Jesus Christ is the Lord God, and if he's the Lord God, that means he's deserving of our all on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. First thing we get out of those prophecies. Second thing we get out of that, those prophecies. John the Baptist's job was to prepare the way for the Lord coming. He was, as it says in Isaiah, to make a highway for our God. Now the image there is that the Lord would be riding in on a horse, as it were, and John's job was to make sure that the horse had something to walk on. So he, so he was to go out to the desert and, and be laying down a runway strip, as it were. Now don't think super highway like we have today. Highway back then was sort of like a, just a, a little bit above average path. 
But John's job was to be, you know, making a highway so the Lord, when he comes into the world, riding on a horse would have something to go on. Now, of course, all that's figurative. But that's, in essence, the picture of what John was supposed to do. Uh, what he literally was supposed to do is be tilling the soil, getting the hearts ready to hear what, what, what would happen when the Lord showed up. Now, I want to submit to you this, that in, that in some vital, important respects, the church today is to be doing exactly what John the Baptist did. Uh, we are to be a corporate John the Baptist, and we're to individual be, be sort of, uh, individually be sort of like John the Baptist. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter. I want to read a portion of Scripture here. And as you're turning there, that's right towards the end of the Bible, right after 1 Peter, 2 Peter. You see, here, here's the background of this. In the Old Testament, they really didn't, they, they saw the Lord coming one time. There was the great day of the Lord. You, you, you hear, read about this quite a bit. A, uh, a day when the Lord was going to come back and wrap up world history. Uh, they saw that mainly as a day of judgment, a day of wrath. Uh, but there is a strand in the Old Testament that also seemed to have this coming in mercy motif. And they didn't know how to put that together. He's going to come in mercy, but he's also going to judge the world that we don't know. Now, what we learn in the New Testament is that the Lord's coming to earth to wrap this whole thing up. The last chapter of world history, which the Bible calls end times, that's all it means. We're in the end times now. We're in the last chapter. Um, but what we learn is that it, it happens in two phases. He comes the first time to start something and the second time to end something. The first time he comes, he comes as Jesus Christ, the humble servant. He comes to serve, he comes to teach, he comes to suffer, he comes to save. Uh, he, he, the purpose of, of doing this is to overcome evil with good. On the cross, he, 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 show, he accomplishes the, the defeat of the enemy by his outrageous love, and he gives us our marching orders that that is how we're supposed to live, overcoming evil with good. He comes to deal a death blow to the enemy and thereby open up free access to the grace of God. And he comes to start that revolution that he calls the kingdom of God. That's why he comes the first time. Now, he's still, in a sense, present on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit by means of the church. So he's left physically, but his, he's still coming. This is still the second coming where he's now working through his church. But there is going to be a time where he finalizes everything, uh, where he wraps up what world history is all about. And that's what we call the second coming. He'll come physically a second time, and his purpose this time will not, not be to be a servant and a teacher and a suffering Savior, but rather he'll come in his might and his glory and his power, and the purpose will be to finish up the job that he started in, on, on Calvary and that the church has been continuing throughout history. He'll come as a judge of the world, the Bible says. He's going to come to purge the world once and for all of all that remains inconsistent with his character and his purposes. In other words, he's coming to make the world once and for all the dome in which he is king, which is to say the kingdom of God. And then the Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.12 and Revelations 5.10 that we the bride will reign with him on the earth forever and ever. He's coming back again. Now our job as kingdom revolutionaries, as bearers of the kingdom, is to do what John did and to be preparing the way for that to happen. Our job is to lay down the runway strip for the Lord to come back on. We're not going to just sort of evolve the world into a wonderful, wonderful place. There's going to come a cataclysmic end where the Lord's going to come back. 
But the job of the church, like John the Baptist, is to be laying down the runway for that. And this is kind of what 2 Peter speaks about when it says this in chapter 3, verse 8. Peter says, Do not forget this one thing, starting with verse 8. Dear friends, you can forget a lot of other things, but don't forget this. With the, day of the, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. See, the problem here is, if you read Second Peter, these, these Christians were facing persecution and possibly death, being fed to lions or whatever. And some of them were saying, hey, what about this second coming thing? Jesus said he was going to come back and set up his kingdom. Man, it's been 40 years, and he hasn't come back yet. And so Peter's saying, you know what? He doesn't measure time the same way that, that you do. Instead, Peter says, he's very patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Uh, God doesn't want a single person in history to perish. But the day of the Lord, Peter says, will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought we to be? Well, you ought to live a holy and godly life as you look forward to the day of God and speed is coming. Apparently, uh, our living a holy and godly life speeds up its coming. We hasten its coming. The day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Bottom line, Jesus is coming back again. He's going to come back like a thief, which is, is uh, to, to connote to us that unexpectedly, suddenly. It's not like there's this you know, real clear warning, boom, it's going to happen. And, and that ought to affect the way we live. Uh, we don't know when. And I want to encourage everyone in the, who, who's within hearing distance of me right now to be okay with that. You don't know when. Um, and uh, that ought to affect the way you live. But I really would encourage you not to get overly involved in some of the uh, useless, futile speculation that seems to be going around right now about the when and the where's and the why's and the who's of the end time prophecies and people trying to influence public policy on the basis of a literal reading of the book of Revelation and all the disputes about whether the millennium comes after or before in the middle of the tribulation period and whether this rapture is literal or not and if, is that going to happen before or in the middle or after the tribulation period and will the tribulation be seven years or 14 years or three and a half years and who the heck are the locusts in the book of Revelation and, and uh, is Henry Kissinger the Antichrist? You know, I really wouldn't go there. I, you know, what is the point of all that? You know, that is, that is no different than going to a psychic and trying to find out the details of how you're going to die. Please tell me, but, you know, Miss Psychic, who uh, I need to know the details. Will I die in a car crash or will I fall off a cliff? And, and if I'm in a car crash, will I lose consciousness before my windshield, uh, before my head goes through the windshield? Or, or, or will I be conscious when that happens? Will my eyes be plucked out before I die? Or will they, you know, what is the point of that? Get around to living. Life's too short to be worrying about the details of your death. Live. The point of all of that is simply to say, be ready. Live every day as, as though it's your last. You know, you, you could come at any time and you could die at any time. So live passionately right now. Today's the day to seize life and start living for Jesus Christ. 
He's coming like a thief, and if you could predict exactly when and where and how and all the details, it wouldn't be much of a thief, now would it? Okay. It's been 2,000 years, and some people say, well, that maybe is just a bunch of mythology. But, but, but the, what Peter's telling us here is this. God doesn't measure time the way we measure time. All right? 2,000 years for us is a long time, but for him it's a nanosecond. Think of it this way. Uh, I turned 48 last week. Woo-hoo! Yes, 48 years old. Yes, I, yeah, okay, that, that's about how excited I am. But there you go. This year will be 148th of my life. My daughter will turn 24 this year. This will be 124th of her life. She's going to experience this year as being twice as long as I will because it's only 148th of my whole life experience, so it feels that fast, whereas her, her year is 124th of her total experience, so it feels longer, twice as long, all other things being equal, as, as, as my year. All right, we, that's why we, as you get older, time speeds up. It, it gets faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's wild. It's a merry-go-round. It's just crazy. I'll be dead by tomorrow morning, I'm sure of it. There's no doubt. Now, uh, imagine if you're God and you've been around forever. You never started to exist. You've always been around. You always will be around. Any finite duration of time against his life experience is infinitesimally small. Which means a trillion years is like that. And a second is like that. It's all infinitesimally small. So from God's perspective, you know, he, he, at one point in the triune God, they said, hey, let's invite some others in here. Yeah, let's get a bride for the sun. They create the world. The world falls. Uh, Jesus comes, saves the world. He returns a second time. Boom, it happens like that. Let's have a bride. Oh, we got a bride. Let's have a, we got a world. And boom, boom. It's just like that. Now, for us, we're, you know, our lives are only 70, 80 years long usually, and, and so 2,000 years is like, oh, it's taking forever. But from God's perspective, it's boom. It's, it's kind of like, you know, there's, there's quantum particles that exist for a fra- like a millionth of a second. A mu- muon, for example, exists for about a millionth of a second. So a second is very long to a muon. Now, how, think how long a minute is. Now, to us, a minute is very, very short. But if you're a quantum particle, it's very, very long. Same principle, except we're the quantum particles next to God. All right, you got that point. He's coming back. But what you need to know is this. I don't know when. It could be another 2,000 years. That wouldn't be uh, much of a stretch for God at all. Who knows? But when he comes back, he'll he'll purge the world, the Bible says, with fire. And I don't know how literal or figurative that is, but there'll be this refining that goes on. And in the refining, it's really the refining of God's love that is experienced as wrath if you don't want the love. And this refining will purge away everything that is inconsistent with his character and purpose. And then he will set up the dome in which God is king, the kingdom of God, and his love shall reign supreme and define all that will be. That's why 2 Peter says that, that this will be the time when finally righteousness is at home. Uh, it, it's, it's, it, it will have a place in the world. Then the purpose for all of history will be consummated. Now this is, if you are a member of the revolution, very, very good news. There are some sad parts to it because you wonder about loved ones, whatever, but you trust that God will do the right thing and, and he'll take care of that. But in the end, it's ultimately good news, which is why we're supposed to be living in a way that actually hastens its coming. What the passage means is this. There'll be a time, finally there'll be a time where the revolution will have totally overthrown the devil, and that's good news. Finally, there'll be a time where the revolution will put an end to all that is contrary to the love that is shown forth on Calvary. Finally, there'll be no more wars wasting young people's lives. That's a good thing. 
And finally, there'll be a time where there'll be no more uh, murders and no more hatred, no more apathy, no more lovelessness, and that will be a good thing. Finally, there'll be a time where there'll be no more disease and no more AIDS and no more typhoid typhoid fever, no more tsunamis and no more earthquakes. That will be a good thing. Finally, there'll be a time where there'll be no more orphans and no more parents who have to live the rest of their life wondering what happened to their kidnapped children, and that will be a good thing. Finally, there'll be a time where there'll be no more the aging process, no more the aches and pains that wipe away every tear from our eye. Finally, there'll be a time where the creation will stop groaning like a woman in labor pains, as Paul says in Romans 8. And finally, there'll be a time when Jesus Christ's beauty and love and sovereignty will be manifested throughout every square inch of the cosmos. Amen. And the creation will sing and dance when the love of the triune God, that will be a very good thing. This is good news, and that's why we look forward to it. you, you got to get sufficiently disgusted with the way the world is to really long for this. And I love life to the core, but I, am, I, I really am disgusted. I, I, it's like, I, that's why I opt out of the system. You know what? That's that. Uh, but I look forward to a time when there'll be a new heaven. It'll be spanking new and a new earth. And then the creation shall be as God wants it to be. But if you're clinging to this world, this isn't necessarily very good news. If this is all you know, this isn't very good news at all. If, if, this is, if you're living for the here and the now, trying to get a modicum of worth on the basis of what you can achieve or possess or whatever, this isn't very good news at all. If you're not part of the revolution, if you haven't submitted your life to God because you're too busy doing your own thing, then this isn't very good news at all because this passage says that all that you're clinging to right now is going to be burned up. Now maybe you're thinking, oh, he's trying to use the hellfire and brimstone scare tactics to get me into heaven now, aren't you? And I just want to tell you, I'm not trying to do nothing. I'm not trying to do nothing. I'm just trying to speak truth. The world's going to be burned up. Uh, you know, and, and that shouldn't even be news to you. Uh, look, at you don't think it's scare tactics when you're reading a science book that the world's going to be burned up. You got that in, in high school science, didn't you? You already knew this. You know, the, from a scientific perspective, the sun is going to use up its, going to eventually exhaust its heat, and it's going to uh, increase in mass and gravity, and it's going to start to implode in on itself and turn into a supernova, and it's going to suck the entire solar system in on itself. And then we're all going to be fried and incinerated, and eventually that will happen to the entire universe. This shouldn't surprise you that the Bible says it. Science says it. I'm just saying it's going to happen maybe a little sooner than you thought. The world's going to be dissolved. Don't cling to it. And even when I say maybe it's going to happen a little sooner than you thought, that really shouldn't surprise you either because you probably already suspected that. You look at the world the way it is right now with the increase of technology, which isn't a bad thing, but what it's doing is it's making the world a, a much more of an interrelated system, a dynamic system, as the, the, as the, the phrase is used, which means that all of the, the whole is dependent on the parts and the parts on the whole, which means it's more sensitive to, to minute changes. And, and what it, the bottom line is what it means is this. As the world becomes interconnected and information gets disseminated, the more, vulnerably, the more vulnerable the planet is to the sickest person out there. And uh, it is just a matter of time before, and we should fight this with all we can do, but before some group of people gets nuclear technology and they don't really care if the world blows up, or some individual gets nuclear technology and, and the world's becoming a scarier and scarier place, but you already knew that. And who knows what's going to go on in North Korea or who knows what's going to go on in Iran or who knows what's going to go on in Pakistan. Uh, there's a lot of, of missile pointing going on. I don't know and you don't know and I'm not going to make any predictions because when it happens, it's going to happen like a thief. But I'll tell you this, I'm not scared. And, and, and if, see, if you're clinging to the world, you are scared. 
what, the, what the Lord calls you to do is die to that. Die to that way of getting life. Die to the here and now, clinging to life as though it's the only thing you have. And then you'll discover real life. Then you'll discover freedom. Then you'll discover joy. And now the second coming isn't bad news. It's very, very good news. Because it will rid the world of all that is contrary to uh, God's character. Peter says in the light of this second coming, in the light of this, this time when God's going to wrap up the show, it has a point. Every play has got a final act, and we're in it. In the light of that, how should we live? live? And Peter says, you ought to live a holy and godly life as you look forward to the day of God and speed up its coming. Now, live a holy and godly life. Now, a lot of people, if you come out of a real religious background with legalism, uh, your brain goes places with the word holy or holiness or godliness that, that I don't want you to go to. This isn't about some kind of trivial little list of, of what activities you can do or can't do. Uh, what the root of the word means to be holy is to be distinct, separate, unusual, set apart, consecrated for a special purpose. What the word godly means is you just look like God. You look godlike. And we know what human beings look like when they're godlike. They look like Jesus Christ. And so it's just saying live a separate life that looks like Jesus Christ. Because we know he's coming back again, live distinct from the world. Set yourself apart from the world like John the Baptist did. John the Baptist took a Nazarite vow, which meant he could drink some things and not other things and wear certain clothes but not other clothes and eat certain foods but not other foods. He set himself apart. Now, we don't take the Nazarite vow and therefore do those particulars, but the principle that we're to be set apart, not your average everyday worldling, uh, but, but we march to a different drummer, that is something which we are to take very seriously because it is the essence of what we're called to do. And this is why I have been so emphatic on keeping the holiness of the kingdom of God distinct from the kingdom of the world and emphasizing the kingdom people. Our value system is to be radically different from the value system of the world. We take a vow of separateness when we pledge our life to Jesus Christ. It means we're not going to live like worldlings. We're going to live Christ-like lives. Instead of living for ourselves, we're going to live, to some degree at least, from the, our heart of hearts, we're going to live for others. Because we know Jesus is coming back. And our job is to prepare the way for him to come back. We're part of a revolution. It means that instead of spending all of our money on ourselves, we're going to spend money on the kingdom sacrificially because Jesus is coming back and our job is to prepare the way. We're part of a revolution. It means that instead of doing our own will, we're going to seek the Father's will in all things because the Lord is coming back and our job is to prepare the way. And, and uh, uh, we're part of a revolution. It means that we're not going to do what we want to do because it feels good to do it, but we're going to do what he wants us to do even if it hurts us, kills us to do it because he's coming back. And our job is to prepare the way. That's what we live for, and we're, we're part of a revolution. Our job is not to pursue the American dream, but to pursue the Jesus dream because Jesus is coming back. And our job is to prepare the way, and we're part of a revolution. Our job is not to fear the end of the world, but to actually speed it up by sharing Christ with others and inviting them in on this. Because, see, we're part of the revolution. To be a, a revolutionary is to live in revolt. You revolt against the status quo of this world, the ugliness of the world, the violence of the world, the mean-spirited, the lovelessness of the world, the sin of the world. You revolt against that, and you consecrate your life to Jesus Christ, a revolutionary who prepares the way of the coming of the Lord and so I leave you with this question as we prepare for communion. Do you see yourself like that? Is that how you understand yourself? That you are part of this 
mustard seed, largely inconspicuous, one soul at a time revolution that is taking place, that is preparing the way for the Lord to come back. And I would pray that now as we get ready for communion, uh, you, you, you ask the Lord honestly to say, Lord, purge my life of all the stuff that is just of the world and not of you, that I might be the revolutionary that you want me to be. Now, what you, you don't know maybe, but what you're asking him is, Lord, manifest your joy in your life and your peace and your love in me. Just I, I want your life and I don't want to be clinging to the life of the world. But use this time as a way of looking at Jesus Christ and then surrendering every area of your life over to him. If the worship team would come forward, and if the ushers would come forward, what we're going to do is this. We'll uh, worship the Lord. In fact, the rest of the service is worshiping the Lord because that's just about ascribing worth to God. We're going to take up an offering, which is ascribing worth to God and the value of his kingdom. And then uh, I will come back up and we'll lead us in, uh, we'll lead us in some, uh, this time of taking communion together. Lord, be present during this time. Be honored during this time. Lord God, we submit all that we are, including our resources, over to you and ask that you'd have your way, Lord. Build your kingdom in our hearts to make us outrageous givers that your kingdom would never, the work of your kingdom would never falter for lack of finances, Lord. And then, Holy Spirit, right now, pour out your spirit, your, 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 your presence on us. Draw us in to the stream of the revolution. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.